The following KOPN podcast is made possible by the generous donations of listeners like you. Please consider a donation to listener-supported community radio, KOPN. You can donate securely on our website at kopn.org. Hi, welcome to Food Sleuth Radio, where we help you think beyond your plate. I'm Melinda Hemmelgarn, a registered dietitian and investigative nutritionist, and I'm on a mission to find food truth and connect the dots between food, health, and agriculture. And I'm very much delighted today to have the author of Animal Factory, The Looming Threat of Industrial Pig, Dairy, and Poultry Farms to Humans and the Environment, authored by David Kirby. David, welcome. Thank you so much. It's good to be here. Well, this is a topic that is near and dear to my heart. Being a registered dietitian, I I feel that food is more than just the protein, fat, and calories and vitamins and minerals. I think it's very important for people to know where their food comes from. And it's critically important that people understand what's going on with regard to the meat that they choose in the grocery store and how that ultimately has a ripple effect and affects the environment. Now, how did you get started? How did you become interested in this topic? Sure, I'm happy to. Um, let's not forget it's not just the meat you select. It's uh, eggs and dairy. That's right. And, as well, and dairy isn't just about anything. You buy any kind of packaged processed food contains dairy products, too. Right. I got interested in this in, in working in my first book, which had to do with autism. I got to know Robert Kennedy, Jr., and he and I were talking one day, and just in the course of conversation, he told me about a terrible situation down in a little town called Prairie Grove, Arkansas, which is in the middle of the chicken belt, and the chicken companies down there with their large contracting growers, they were giving the growers a, a feed additive that contains arsenic, and arsenic makes the birds grow faster, it, uh, it prevents a certain intestinal parasite, and it also has the happy benefit of making the flesh look very uniform and pearly white in, in the supermarket under the cellophane. So they were using this product to uh, to grow their chickens, and then, of course, most of it comes out the other end. Not all of it. Some There is some residue left in the bird, but most of it comes out and ends up in the litter, uh, which is then pulverized and spread through the air, dry spread, onto fields in and around this town called Prairie Grove, including the school which has uh, crop cropland on three sides. And for several years, they were spreading arsenic-laden chicken litter around the town, tiny little town, just a couple thousand people, with well over 20 cases of pediatric cancer uh, from the school. And many other older people in town also have uh, cancers. Three 14-year-old boys came down with the same very rare form of testicular cancer. Mm. So... It's a horrible tragedy, a terrible story. There is still no 100% proof that the arsenic is causing the cancer, even though all of these people, arsenic was found in their air filters, and it was traced back to the feed and the chicken through molecular process. But in addition to to, to realizing that was just a, a, a very compelling human story, I really wanted to know why we give poison to... <laughs> to birds, uh, especially a food source. And in doing so, that's how I learned about what we call factory farms, what the government calls the concentrated animal feeding operations, CAFOs. And that really opened my eyes because I admit uh, three years ago, a little over three years ago, I was uh, uh, blissfully ignorant of, of 
my animal proteins uh, provenance. Well, most people are. They are, and, and, and they can kind of be forgiven because we're not trained to research our food, and it's crazy. I mean, people will research a child safety seat. They will research a computer for weeks and weeks and weeks. They'll watch the TV commercials about what kind of gasoline does this for your car and cleans your engine and makes it run better, and then they run down to the supermarket and load up on factory farm animal products uh, <laughs> that may have harmed the environment and, and, and harmed people and made some animals really miserable in the process. Well, the propaganda is very effective. You know, as a dietitian, I can tell you that I get lots of material from the food industry. Mm-hmm. And it usually has the green color on it because, you know, this is a good, green is good these days. Mm-hmm. And it talks about American Heart Association stamp of approval. You know, it's got low fat and high protein, and this is a good thing. But it's very difficult, as you say, to find out how was that meat raised, under what conditions, and whose hands were really involved in, in getting that meat from the farm onto my table. So it, it's not easy for consumers to know, which is why I think your book is so critically important. And second of all, I have to tell you that farmers have pretty much been duped as well into thinking that you got to get big or get out. Both those things are true, and uh, I don't blame the farmers at all. They were essentially sold a bill of goods by the corporations that came in and said just that. If you want to stay in the business, you have to contract with us because there are so few processing plants left. And by the way, we happen to own the processing plant in your state, so you can try to raise pigs on your own, but good luck getting them in the processing plant because we want... 1,000 perfectly uniform pigs who all weigh exactly 250 pounds with the exact same genetic makeup and one half inch of back fat because that's where our machines are calibrated. Uh, so, yeah, if you want to grow and if you want to sell, you better do it our way or get out and get off your land that you've been on for five generations. What would, I mean, most people would do it <laughs> and not complain. So we're all kind of perpetuators and victims of a system of, of cheap industrial food. So, yes, I, I don't blame the farmers. I, 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 I admire farmers and I admire farming, but I don't admire uh, this industrial scale type where, like you said, uh, it can hurt people and it can hurt the animals. And another problem really in the marketplace is that for a consumer, the choices are becoming fewer. And so even those of us who may think, well, gosh, I just read Animal Factory and I've got to change the way I eat, there may not be that choice available, especially in some places where there's just one big box store. I think that's true. It's funny because where I live, I feel the opposite is true. In Brooklyn, New York, I feel like the options become wider and greater all the time because there's so much more interest in and demand for locally produced, sustainably produced food, you know, the farmer's markets, at the co-ops, at the restaurants, and it, it feels like more than just a fad. People are, are, are very serious about it. And even my local supermarket now has alternatives. Yes, they're more expensive, but they were raised in a more humane, more sustainable way. So I would encourage people, even those who rely on big box stores, to, to look to see if any of those products are carried, uh, to ask the management about it, and then to do your own research, there's a wonderful site called sustain, sustainabletable.org where you can punch in your, your zip code and find locally sustainably produced protein. I think if 
supermarkets were forced to give photographs of where <laughs> the food came from, uh, <laughs> people would idea. start heading down toward the more expensive end of the aisle. And I'm not saying that, you know, hooray, we get to spend more money on food, but uh, and one day I hope that the prices can, can be equalized. But I think it is a good idea. And what we, like you said, with the green brochures you get from the food industry, in the supermarket you see farm fresh, right? Right. Everything is farm fresh. And, of course, a perfectly meaningless term with no legal <laughs> anything. But it makes you think this came from Farmer Brown down the road, you know? Exactly. And uh, there are some, some interesting, you know, some brands will put a little number on the package, and you can actually go online to their website and punch in the number and see the farm where the chicken was raised. I understand in some European countries now that's actually right there in the supermarket, and I think it's mandatory. So if they have eggs for sale, there's a little computer screen, and you punch in the brand of eggs, and then it pulls up the farm, and it shows you exactly how the eggs were raised or the chickens were raised. So I think if people knew, they would make more effort. I certainly did. And, and people always said, oh, am I going to become a vegetarian or did you become a vegetarian? I said, no, I just am much more careful about what I buy and eat, and I do have to spend more money on it, so I, I end up eating less, which is probably not a bad thing. Um, exactly, <laughs> exactly. You know, it's interesting when we talk about price. The price at the checkout is only one part of the story. And there's the whole environmental cleanup cost. And in telling your story, I understand that you interviewed three unlikely activists. And you saw some environmental damage along the way. I'm, I'm especially familiar with the News River in North Carolina mm-hmm. and the, the huge fish kill there. And I like the way you went about writing this book and that you told personal stories. So... Let's talk about some of these environmental costs that you witnessed firsthand. Sure. Uh, well, let's let's start with Rick Dove, and, and and the situation is is better on the Noose River than than at the height of, of the fish kills that were uh, really ghastly, and and quite frankly, as a writer, I don't know, fun to describe is the right word, but certainly makes for blood pumping writing <laughs> when mm-hmm. you're describing the slaughter of billions of fish. Well, you don't have to embellish, I guess is what I'm trying to say. Right. Uh, good story tells itself. But, you know, Rick uh, organized something called the Noose Air Force, and I've been up a couple times with these volunteer pilots. And you go up inland just a couple counties away into Sampson County and Duplin County. Now, these are some of the poorest, most rural counties in, in North Carolina, which, you know, most of North Carolina is pretty poor and rural itself, but this is the poorest and most rural, uh, largely African-American, and this is where all the big farms are, uh, the factory farms, and they're just crammed in. You go up in the air, and they're just crammed in one after the other after the other, each with their massive, massive lagoons, and the spray fields where they're out during growing season, day and night, spraying liquid waste onto the fields, not as fertilizer to grow anything productive. It's just to get rid of all that nitrogen and phosphorus in the pig crap. And they basically they'll plant Bermuda grass or hay or something essentially just to absorb as many nutrients from the soil as they can. I don't know what they do with it after that, but they don't feed it to animals because it's, it's too high in, in nitrogen. At any rate, if you go up in the plain and you look down and you see them spraying and they're over-applying it and the ground is saturated and it's pooling up 
and it's running off and it's going into the creeks and the wetlands and you can see the green, orange, yellow algae blooms that it's causing. Uh, in some cases, you would see farmers just, just intentionally spraying right into a creek. That's not nutrient application. That is waste disposal, and it is illegal. It is a violation of the Clean Water Act. It's a federal crime. You could actually go to prison for it. Does anybody so, go to prison, though? Well, <laughs> no. Well, sometimes they go to prison. Uh, usually they, they, they get some fines, or if the government doesn't intervene, then the citizens have a wonderful tool uh, called the Clean Water Act, and there's a provision for a citizen's lawsuit to force the operator to stop discharging into waters of the state. So citizens can uh, actually do the work of government. Um, it's very sad they have to. And usually what happens is you, you have to give a 60-day notice to sue, and in many cases they clean up their act, you know, but in other cases they are defiant. And they go to court and they do lose. So, and, and that could bring me to my next story, which takes place in Yakima Valley, Washington, with the wonderful Helen Redout, who's a uh, cherry farmer up in this beautiful valley, our agriculture valley, where in the 90s uh, these giant mega dairies started moving up from central California and southern California and immediately started polluting the air. And nitrate levels started going up in, in people's wells, and then the Yakima River started getting polluted. And uh, I spent a lot of time there, too. And these western dairies, uh, the cows are outside most of the time in these giant feedlots and these huge pens, these dusty, well, they're muddy in the winter. <laughs> the cows get covered in mud and muck and urine and feces right up to their udders. It is the most disgusting thing you've ever seen. You can't believe it's a food source. And then in the uh, summertime, the manure just bakes in the sun, and those are usually when the calves are out running around. And the cows and the calves grind up that stuff into a very fine dust, into a particulate matter that's so small it can go right into your lungs. And uh, when the wind kicks up, it blows this stuff around the valley, and there's a brown haze. Sometimes it's so thick people sometimes have to turn on their headlights driving through it. And when I returned from California and Washington, I always had the same symptoms, uh, low-grade fever, body aches, aching joints, cough, runny nose. Uh, I would open my suitcase and get a big whiff of cow poop. It's, it's vile. And people are getting sick. And uh, poor people, again, it's always the poorest, and in this case, mostly Latinos, in Yakima Valley, uh, who depend on well water for drinking, and those wells are heavily contaminated with nitrates, which can cause diabetes and spontaneous abortions and blue baby syndrome and other terrible diseases. And the EPA, fortunately, uh, finally, well, under our new president, I guess, uh, got it together to send some agents out there, and they're in Yakima Valley right now testing the well waters and uh, trying to determine the source of the elevated nitrates, but of course everybody thinks it's it's the cow manure. Right. And if you have time, I could tell you about Karen Hudson in Illinois, but I'll I'll let you conduct the interview. Well, let me <laughs> let me take one break here just to remind our listeners that we are talking to David Kirby, who is the author of Animal Factory: The Looming Threat of Industrial Pig, Dairy, and Poultry Farms to Humans and the Environment. Yes, David, I do want you to talk about Karen Hudson because she is in Illinois. And her story is important as well. 
It is, and the reason I included, you know, I, I have an East Coast, a West Coast, and a Midwest, which I thought was important to show the national breadth of this. Right. And as you know, the situation in the Midwest is quite dire. Missouri, Illinois, Iowa, Indiana, Ohio, Michigan, these are big CAFO states, and the industry has been moving in in, in great numbers. Karen, uh, much like both Rick and Helen, a uh, conservative bedrock, small-town American, living on a farm that was in her husband's family for five generations. Uh, they grow corn and soybeans, but they're, they're no-till farmers. They don't use harmful chemicals on their land, and they don't till. And one of their neighbors in town uh, announced one day he was going to bring a giant mega dairy into the little town called Elmwood. And Karen begged him not to and told him there would be trouble and that he couldn't manage all the manure and there would be spills. And he ignored her and he ignored everybody and he went ahead and did it. And one winter in 2001, in February, it just rained and snowed and then rained and then snowed some more. And his lagoon, uh, where he keeps the liquefied cow waste or kept it, kept rising higher and higher and higher. You're supposed to keep a foot or two at least of, of margin. Uh, for this very reason, and of course it was so it was raining and snowing, so he he couldn't legally go out and apply manure onto the land, so there was nothing he could do but just sit there and watch the lagoon. And at one point, you know, it got up to like an inch from the rim, and he panicked, and he got some hoses about a mile long and ran them all the way out to a ravine that was stopped with an earthen berm, uh, and he began pumping. And he pumped five million gallons of waste into the ravine to prevent his lagoon from completely just overtopping and just, you know, spilling. But, of course, uh, sure enough, the berm in the ravine did not hold. And all of that waste spilled out first into a pond and then into a creek uh, called Kickapoo Creek, uh, which empties into the Illinois River right around the spot where Peoria nearby gets most of its drinking water. So that was a, a huge disaster. I forgot to mention Helen used the Clean Water Act and her neighbors to sue some of the dairies, and one of them was, was very intransigent, and they took him to court, and uh, they beat the crack at, crap out of him, and he ended up paying hundreds and hundreds of thousands of dollars in fines and penalties that went to pay for some of that well water testing in Washington. So, so all three of these people are, are really, they truly are accidental activists. They're not born environmentalists. They are just people who really love their hometowns and communities and would do anything to, to defend them. And would and also value clean water. Clean water, clean air, clean land, clean animals, healthy workers, healthy neighbors, a, a thriving rural economy that's not completely dominated by one company where people have the right and the ability to farm on their own and to go outside without breathing their neighbor's crap, without getting sick, being able to put clothes on the line without them stinking, being able to have their grandkids over without the kids passing out and puking from the smell. These are fundamental bedrock American values. Your property, your domain, if your neighbor who has every right to exploit his or her land for economic benefit, but those rights stop at the property line. And it's, it's trespassing. It's, it's nuisance. It's, those kind of laws have been on the books since medieval England. And just like it's not permitted for your 
neighbor to allow his animals to roam over on your property willy-nilly, it's not legal or proper for him to allow waste and fecal material and gaseous material and groundwater to seep over onto your property. You know, I hear what you're saying about making sure that people know to question where their food comes from and to make better choices in the marketplace. Is there another outcome that you hope to occur from your book? Well, the, the only thing I can really hope for and ask for is that people educate themselves before they they reach in the supermarket and realize what the true price tag is behind that big box of meat in the big box store. You know, I was actually thinking I'm, I'm going to try to do some calculations. How much swine flu costs the United States in terms of you know lost productivity, lost economic activity, lost lives, uh, all that money we spent on vaccines that nobody took, and now we have to get rid of it and we don't know what to do with it. You add all that up, we're talking about tens of billions of dollars, uh, or certainly billions of dollars, divided up by 300 million people, and that was the price of the swine flu epidemic for each and every American. Now, the origins of that swine flu came from a pig farm, a pig factory in North Carolina. About six of the eight genetic components came from there, we know, back in 1998. And people at the CDC were worried that this was going to uh, eventually jump over and infect humans, and it did. And my point of all this is somebody bought and ate those super cheap pork chops (laughs) and bacon that was produced at that factory farm and got a great deal, right? They got a great deal. But all the rest of us paid whatever those billions of dollars divided by 300 million is, we paid a lot more for those pork chops than the people who actually ate them. Oh, and you could go so much farther, too. It's not just the swine flu. How about adding into that figure the antibiotic resistance? Well, antibiotic resistance is is widespread. 70% of all antibiotics sold in this country are given to farm animals. A farmer can drive down to the feed store and buy a barrel of the stuff without even a prescription, (laughs) if you can imagine. Right. Uh, And it's usually given low dose. It's non-therapeutic. It's not used to treat sick animals, and there's nothing wrong with treating sick animals with antibiotics. It's a humane thing to do. But to use it as a growth promoter or a disease preventer, because it's low dose, it allows the bug to mutate and, and become resistant to one or usually more drugs, and that's where we get uh, the lovely MRSA from, which is overuse in hospital settings, but overuse on the farm too, and about 3% of fresh commercial pork in the United States is infected with MRSA. And MRSA kills more Americans than AIDS now. So yeah, if you want to talk about uh, other things, antibiotic resistance is definitely on the list. And then there's real estate property value declines. Those are heartbreaking. Absolutely. I'm, I'm sure you've seen it before. I've seen it. I've seen young families who saved up and bought their dream farm and, you know, in a beautiful little organic farm in central Illinois, maybe a couple hundred acres in a house and paradise. And then in comes a hog factory. And they're not going to raise their kids there. They know what's coming. And yet when they go to sell their house, no, they, not only do they not get buyers or offers, they don't get people to even come over and look at it. And, of course, the real estate agents have to tell prospective buyers, well, Cargill is coming in (laughs) with a facility 
uh, down the road, upwind, you know, etc. And in this particular case, they could not sell their house. They finally got a prospective buyer to come. It was the manager, the new guy who was going to be coming in to manage the Cargill facility. And he said, Cargill will buy this from you, but they'll only give 50 cents on the dollar because they know that's how far down your property value is going to go. Oh, my. David, I knew this would happen. We're actually out of time. So I'm going to ask you in one minute to leave us with a charge. Educate yourself. Ask questions. Tell your grocer to carry better products. Meet your local farmers. Go online and research it. If you can't afford to buy all KFO three free all the time, I'm not here telling you not to, but do what you can to start weaning yourself off of this so you don't participate in the system to the extent that you are right now. I want to thank you very much for doing the investigative work in this book. I think that the more opportunities people have to learn about what's really going on, the more likely they will be able to function well in a democracy and exert their citizen rights. If you're just joining us or if you're wondering who we've been speaking to, it's David Kirby, and he's the author of Animal Factory, The Looming Threat of Industrial Pig, Dairy, and Poultry Farms to Humans and the Environment. I know you're on book tour right now. Is that right? I'm out in the San Francisco Bay Area where this uh, message goes over very well. Wonderful. Thank you again, and I will make sure that we have a website posted for the book. If anyone's interested, simply go to http colon double slash animalfactorybook.com. David, thank you again so much for your time. Uh, Thanks for having me. Sure. And I want to thank our listeners for tuning in and remind everyone that Food Sleuth Radio is produced at KOPN Studios in beautiful downtown Columbia, Missouri.